Hey, this is Nick here. I wanted to send a quick message to the founders out there. If you're raising your first round of capital and you're not located in the Bay Area, New York City, or Boston, we'd love to connect with you. Newstack leads deals for founders that don't fit the standard Silicon Valley profile and are located in undercapitalized areas. If that describes you, or if you know a startup that fits that description, please send us an email. It's team at newstack.vc. Now here's a word from our partners. This episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western is the leading provider of venture debt and banking services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. Welcome to the podcast about investing in startups, where existing investors can learn how to get the best deal possible. And those that have never before invested in startups can learn the keys to success from the venture experts. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Welcome back for part two of the Value of Data series. Leo Polovets of Sousa Ventures joins us again as we complete the discussion by covering data-centric business models, ways that data can be monetized, how different types of companies put this into practice, including content, e-commerce, and data providers, advice for investors when thinking about startups with a potential data play, and finally, how startups can cross the data chasm and go from no data early on to a significant competitive advantage with data. Let's jump right into part two of the interview on the value of data. Part three of your series can't be fully actualized without appreciation and understanding of the previous parts. So I'm glad we covered those, but now it's the more fun component where we get into insights and talk about business models and the way that data can be used to really generate value. Leo, can you start us off with an example of a business that relies on data within their business model to create this symbiotic accretive value generation? Sure. So I think Netflix is probably one of my favorite examples here. So obviously they have a lot of content in the form of movies and TV shows. But they also have a lot of data, both on what people watch, you know, perhaps how long they watch it, whether they abandon it in the middle, how they rate shows. And they've combined that to um, combining, you know, your data with other data. They've combined this with uh, metadata on the movies themselves. Like, who are the actors in it? What's the genre? And so as a result, they have this really phenomenal recommendation engine where they know you might like this movie because it has Tom Cruise in it and you like Tom Cruise and it's horror and you like horror movies. So first, they get better engagement through good recommendations. Second, I think user satisfaction is higher because you can see the rating of a movie, you can see the predicted rating for you watching that movie, and you can basically watch stuff that you're almost certain to like mm-hmm. rather than you know trying random things and then maybe half the time you kind of feel like you wasted two hours. And then I think what's really interesting is Netflix has, has used this data in more creative ways. I remember reading an article about House of Cards and Netflix basically bought the rights to that because they crunched the data and they, were, they realized that for their user base, House of Cards had exactly the right recipe to be really well-liked. They had Kevin Spacey and it had a great producer and director <laughs> and this plot was really popular among a lot of users and so they basically bought the rights to this because that's what the data showed them and then obviously it became a really big hit for them. Many years ago, I was a subscriber to Netflix and I got sick of sending the discs back I closed my membership, and then I reopened the membership like two months later, and I didn't even send the disc back, but I was using their recommendation engine to go down the street and then get a uh, movie at Blockbuster. 
just because of that, you know, that recommendation and the ratings certainly helped me at least eliminate bad movies so that I wasn't stuck watching something that wasted my time. Yeah, absolutely. I think also um, for me, Amazon has been similar personally where sometimes when I see something I want to buy on another site, but the site doesn't have reviews, I'll go check it on Amazon just to see the reviews. And then the interesting thing that happens is two thirds of the time, Amazon's price is cheaper and I get it delivered in two days. And so I'll just end up actually buying it on Amazon. So that review database is insanely valuable for them, I think. Bit of a curveball here. I don't know if you're invested in any of the data companies in the startup and venture world, but any thoughts on the Mattermarks and the CB Insights and even AngelList has got to be a great data accumulation engine at this point, but any thoughts on some of the unique companies kind of in our investment space that are doing great things with data? I actually, I did invest in a company in the space called DataFox. They're doing pretty well. I'm really happy with them. I really like those guys a lot. I think in general, it's an interesting space because I think more data is great for VC, but I'm not 100% sure if it's good for predictions. It remains to be seen if it can really help with decision making. And I've talked to a few of the larger VCs that have data science teams that have tried to basically build models to replace VCs and it hasn't worked very well. <laughs> but on the flip side, I think it's really great for like research and discovery. And you know, you're looking at a company and you want to see what are the other related companies in the space. How long has this company been around? How fast has their social presence been growing? I think it's really great for that kind of stuff to basically make better informed decisions yourself. And I think what's interesting is I think with Mattermark and DataFox, and I'm not sure about CB Insights, but a lot of these companies are actually shifting away from investors and more towards salespeople, just because I think that's a more natural area to, to show information on companies where you know, you're looking at a lead and you see they work at some place that you've never heard of, and you know, now you can get a lot of data about that company, see that maybe you already sell to three of their competitors or a couple of their clients. And it's really useful for helping qualify and close sales, uh, which is where some of those companies tend to be heading. You've highlighted three ways in which data can be monetized. Can you touch on each? The first way is kind of the most direct way, which is you can either sell the data directly, uh, which is what my last company, Factual, did. They, they built up this giant database of points of interest and then they would just sell it, like sometimes via data dump, sometimes via API. You can also sell the data indirectly, which I think is you know, what these companies like DataFox and Mattermark do, or maybe a company like LoopNet, where basically you have some shell website, and the website basically just is your data formatted nicely with some links in it. And those can be pretty good businesses. The next way to monetize data is to increase revenue. So this could be with like better recommendations, better ad targeting, basically understanding your customers better so that you can offer them more value that they would be willing to pay more for. The last way, which is kind of related to increasing revenue, is improving profit margins. So this might be using data to optimize your funnel or optimize your prices or lower your costs by optimizing your inventory levels. And again, just kind of looking at, at you know, your data and having it lower your cost of business. I want to touch on how companies can actually put this into practice, including content companies, e-commerce, data providers, and tools. Leo, how might an early stage company in the content space put together a data game plan? So I'm, I don't have a lot of direct experience in the content space, but when I look at a company like BuzzFeed, they've done a really great job of using data on their end. And a lot of this comes down to heavy A-B testing, figuring out what kind of content works the best, 
What kind of headlines work the best? What kind of topics do your users find most interesting? Also, as you get at least a little bit of scale, starting to do things like trending topics, recommendations, again, things that increase engagement for, for existing users, also a page of trending topics that might attract people that have never been to your site before, but kind of want to see what's happening. And then I, I think basically as your usage volume goes up, you can start looking at what are people reading about, you know, maybe you can use that to personalize ads, decide where you want to produce more content. So I think a lot of it's basically all about instrumenting readership and seeing what are people reading, what are they reading together, what are they sharing with others. With each of these things, you might focus on different ones as you're focusing on different aspects of your business. So if you want more growth, maybe you focus on topics to get more sharing. Uh, if you want more engagement, maybe you focus on topics where people read them and then keep reading other things on the same topic. And a lot of it's just about collecting data and looking at it and analyzing it. How about an e-commerce company? What's an example of an e-commerce startup that has executed a strong monetization game plan? The interesting ones here, to me at least, are companies like True & Co or Warby Parker, where what they're basically doing is they're sending out these boxes of different items and then just keeping track of what do people keep, what do they not keep, and then also getting a little bit of data on the customers so that they have a good sense of this kind of customer prefers these glasses to these glasses, whereas this other kind of customer prefers something else. Um, and I think that's an interesting, that's a pretty interesting play, especially with, with something like True & Co, where I think they, they basically sell women's clothing. And they, they send you this box of a few items, and maybe in the early days they send you five items and you buy zero or one, but as the recommendations are better and better, maybe they send you five items and you keep all five, or you keep four out of five. And it's one of those interesting models where the customer acquisition cost is relatively fixed, but using data, there's so much room to make more revenue for each customer. I see some of these companies that have created so much competitive advantage around data starting to do either product extensions or complete business model extensions into places they've never played before. Do you see a future where a lot of these big technology players that have more robust data sets than anybody else end up becoming larger and play in even more spaces? I think so, although I'm not sure what the future would look like. One of the challenges is that selling data and building APIs around it might be a very different business than your core business. If you're focused on writing content on BuzzFeed, maybe you don't want to be building APIs to show people I don't know, data on readership. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm not sure if companies will go in that direction of selling the data themselves or if there might be something more akin to like a managed data marketplace where you can publish a data set and you know this marketplace takes some cut and then you can sell your data to whoever happens to want it. So the next category was data providers. What's their model for generating revenue and who are their customers? So I think the one I can talk most about is the one I worked at for four years, which is a startup called Factual. And so what they do is they build up data sets of places around the world. And these are the kinds of things you'd see if you're using Yelp or you know, Foursquare or Facebook places. And so they're basically kind of selling picks and shovels to all of these mobile apps and you know, ad targeting companies that need information on, given this latitude longitude coordinate, is it inside of a business? What businesses is it near? Questions like that. So the customers are basically anybody that needs location data. 
And in Factual's case, it's mobile apps, like location-based apps, it's advertisers. And at a basic level, Factual just sells the data directly, uh, sometimes through data dumps, sometimes through APIs. And uh, then for certain verticals, they go deeper. So for, for advertisers, for example, they have some APIs that don't just show you the data, but they help you do, for example, customer profiling based on what locations a, like a person has been in. Uh, so they've started to go kind of one level above the data and into kind of these value-added APIs. Are the pricing models the same for their data across a variety of different customer segments and applications? Um, no, and I would also say that I think pricing for selling data directly is very hard because it has different value to different people. You know, so for like a SaaS product, you could sell it by seat, and maybe that's a good approximation of how much value somebody gets. For data, you know, it can be really different. Like if somebody's using location data for a check-in app, maybe they only make 50 cents per customer per year. If they're using it to figure out where to put their next McDonald's franchise, maybe that's worth like 20 grand to them. So figuring out how to price that stuff is, it's very, you know, experiment-driven. It's, it's a little bit hit and miss. And it's all about just kind of trying a lot of things and learning from experience. The very first project I ever worked on for my last company was for a large mail provider. Old, M-A-L-E? old snail mail. And essentially, the data that they could not collect and they could not measure was the weight of an envelope. Now, they could stop their line, but these envelopes are moving at incredibly high speeds and they're processing hundreds of thousands of these things you know, every hour. And so they weren't able to determine the weight of all these envelopes and they would estimate over nine figures a quarter of loss, what they called revenue recovery. So revenue that they should have been getting via postage and they couldn't get because they weren't able to verify if somebody had correctly posted on the envelope. Now what they could do was vision systems to check what the postage was. So if it became obvious from the vision system, they could kick it out, but they couldn't determine the weight. And so they brought us in. We were a motion control company with motors, drives, and controllers, but we were able to set up a mechanical assembly with a pinch wheel using F equals MA, force equals mass times acceleration to apply a, a force to a letter, and then we would measure its velocity at two points in time and, and calculate the mass based on that. Mm-hmm. And my suggestion was, why are we selling motors and drives out of this because we're, we're only going to make hundreds of thousands a year in business through this huge provider. Why not set up some sort of revenue share as our pricing model based on the percentage of revenue recovery that they get out of this program? And uh, I got a lot of really confused looks from my presidents and my general managers that were operating on a business model where they sold hardware and they sold software as a product and, and that was the transaction. That's really interesting. That, um I mean, to me, that's a little bit of like where I see these companies like Battermark and Datafox going, which is this started by selling the data to VCs and VCs will pay a decent amount for it. Like maybe it's five grand a year, maybe it's 20 grand a year, but they're not going to pay five million a year. But if you go to a sales organization and they're selling a billion dollars in top line every year and you can help improve it by 3%, they might pay you $4 million a year instead of 10K a year. And so it's the same data, but it's a lot more valuable to some people than others. Taking a step back, as an early stage investor, what advice would you have when thinking about data and investing in companies that are either focusing on data or have an element of their strategy where valuable data is being acquired? 
So I think at a minimum, it's valuable just to think about the data in a company and whether it's valuable, even if you don't do anything with that, it's still a good thought exercise and might give you some ideas that you hadn't previously considered. And then the other thing is, if you do believe there's a data play, it's important that there's somebody on the team that can help with it. And that might be a co-founder, it might be an engineer, it might be an advisor, an investor. Some of this advice, for example, like collecting data as early as possible, it makes sense when you hear it, but maybe you don't think of it if you're not experienced in, in the space. And so I think that's where having at least one person that's kind of been there, done that, to help advise you is really valuable. In my last role, I did an analysis of demographic and psychographic factors for a given customer set, and we were trying to link the two. So we did clustering statistical analyses to create what's called a dendogram to understand what the major market segments were within our customer set and then the sub-segments that made up those major segments so that we could profile customers, right? So I was hoping that that analysis would inform our product roadmap so we'd know what sort of products to develop. And unfortunately, the segments were too distinct and too small on a market size level to justify developing products around each of those segments. Mm -hmm. So instead, we just used it for messaging. So for the marketing team, we would just take existing products and we position them as safe and secure to one group and efficient and analytical to a different group. Ultimately, it wasn't where we wanted to go, but the data was useful. Yeah, and like I said, I think as your story shows, if it's a good thought exercise, even if it doesn't lead to where you think it'll lead, you might still get value out of it. So as a startup founder, that projects to have a business where data is the competitive advantage and creates the key value. What thoughts come to mind in terms of crossing the data chasm to get the necessary traction early on without that data advantage in order to reach a point where a critical mass of data does exist to realize the competitive advantage? So I think um, Chris Dixon had this great blog post called Come for the Tools, Stay for the Network. And that was more for uh, like network effects companies, I think, like with Pinterest or LinkedIn, where a lot of times when people first join, you know, they don't have a thousand friends on Pinterest, especially if you're an early Pinterest user. So, you know, you come because it's a great place to save a bunch of photos that you want to bookmark somewhere. And so people come for that, but then as the network grows, like that's where most of the value comes. And I think this applies to a lot of data businesses too, where when a person first signs up for Yelp, there might not be a ton of Yelp reviews, but maybe it's useful because it's a place to save your Yelp reviews. Um, and so I think that there's this powerful play of giving people valuable tools. And then as part of them using those tools, you get some interesting data, whether it's restaurant reviews or what kind of things people like to read or something else. So I think my best advice would be to build a product people want to use, regardless of the data and then have the data that you collect make that product even better over time. I think my parents five years ago didn't know what Yelp was when I mentioned it to them, and now their, their grandchild doesn't know what the yellow pages are. <laughs> <laughs> you mean they used to deliver this huge yellow book? <laughs> I actually just moved to a house, uh, a new house about two months ago, and last week I got a small yellow pages book on my doorstep. I was surprised. I, I didn't realize people actually made those anymore. <laughs> and you live here in, in the San Francisco area, so it's even more surprising. <laughs> any final thoughts on the value of data or anything that I may have missed that you'd like to touch on before we wrap up? 
I think my, my parting thought is just that data is very valuable and if you if you think through it a little bit in the seed stage, it can become a really tremendous asset as your company grows, both for retaining users, for attracting new users, for fighting off competition. And so I think it's, it's definitely something that founders should think about, even if they end up not deciding to do anything with it. All right, well, Leo, well, thanks for coming out here and doing this interview in person. I really appreciate the time. And I'm sorry you got lost on the way, but <laughs> next time I'll make sure to give you better directions. <laughs> Maybe next time we'll be on the Midwest, right? Yeah, right? Let me know when you come out. Thanks again, Leo. Thank you, Nick. At this point, if you're a VC, you've heard of Carta. You've probably even accepted securities from a portfolio company on the platform. It feels like every new company is using Carta, and there's already 16,000 VC-backed companies on the platform. They also offer tools and services for VCs like fund administration. Carta has an army of fund accountants delivering high-quality service and dedicated teams of engineers constantly improving the functionality of their user-friendly investor platform with in-app quarterly reporting, real-time fund metrics, LP portals, and more. It's also easy to switch from an existing fund administrator or to augment your in-house team with their service. Learn more about their services at carta.com forward slash investors. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. Okay, for today's takeaways, I wanted to review the three major sections and their subcomponents within the Value of Data series. Number one was the importance of data. Here we discussed the historical reasons why data is becoming more important, and also the ways data has become a strong, defensible, sustainable competitive advantage. Older forms of competitive advantages, like software and hardware, are no longer as defensible. So what are the types of competitive advantage? Leo mentioned recommendations, where he gave the example of Yelp reviews, improved efficiency, where Leo mentioned Uber, and their ability to optimize their fleet of vehicles to serve the demand in different locations at different times, and finally, general predictions and modeling, where he talked about LendUp and where they can make better predictions about what people can and cannot pay as opposed to using an older inaccurate methods such as their credit score. The second major takeaway is called data collection. This section related to collection methods and tips. Here we reviewed how to tell if data can be valuable and how to collect it. First, we talked about the four attributes of data. Number one is it's hard to build. So easy to acquire data sets will have less value because they're not proprietary. Number two was the data has to be clean, accurate, and up-to-date. Bad data and old data does not just have no value, it actually has negative value if it's being used to make decisions. The third attribute was that the data has to be useful. In this portion, Leo compared purchase history and its tremendous predictive value versus data on shoe size, which may have very limited value. And the fourth and final attribute on data is the size of the data set. 
This relates to the sample size and statistical significance. But even beyond that, large size data sets are not only more relevant, but can be used in many more ways. After discussing the four attributes of data, we transitioned into the five major sources of data. Number one here was direct collection. This is asking users for feedback. Number two was crowdsourcing. So where data collection is often an outbound request, this source typically occurs inbound when a user chooses to contribute unsolicited. The third major source of data was paid crowdsourcing. This is different than the previous in that the company has hired an individual or service to acquire the data. In this case, the data may be publicly available, but not organized the way you need it, or may be scattered across many sources. The fourth major source of data he called data exhaust. This is data that's collected during normal usage of a product that the user often doesn't realize. It could be as simple as clicking one link when a list of five links are presented. And as digital online networks have grown, the importance of data exhaust has only grown with it. The fifth and final major source of data was combining data sets. This is the interrelationship between data sets that can create additional insights. And Leo closed off this section by suggesting that startups collect as much data as early as possible. The analysis and processing of data is less important early on, but merely the fact that it has been collected in a clean way will create many opportunities for a competitive advantage down the road. The third and final takeaway is on data business models. This is where we reviewed different businesses that use data at their core. We first discussed the three ways that data can be monetized. This included, number one, selling the data directly. If you have data that others would like to access, the data itself can be the product or service. Number two was increasing revenue. So this is possible via better recommendations or better ad targeting. Essentially, the better you understand your customers, the better you can serve them through products and services. And the third way that data can be monetized was through expanding margin. This has to do with optimizing pricing or optimizing the cost side of the business. An example here was holding more appropriate levels of inventory, which can reduce inventory cost, and also increase revenue by preventing going out of stock. We then transitioned to talking about executing data monetization within different types of companies. There are four main types. First were content companies. For these types of businesses, Leo advocates A-B testing different types of content and different headlines. He also talked about measuring which types of content may elicit more sharing and which types may cause more engagement and or time reading other related material. He called this instrumenting readership. Depending on current goals for growth or engagement, different approaches can be used based on data. The second company type we talked about was e-commerce. Here he cited companies that send out boxes of products and subsequently monitor what people keep, what they send back, and what type of products and or product characteristics most resonate with them. The number three company type was data providers. For this group, Leo talked about those that sell access to premium data those that sell API access to raw data, and those that wish to augment their existing data sets with external data. And finally, the fourth major type of company includes B2B and B2C tools. In this area, 
Leo's favorite includes tools that improve efficiency through converting emails or faxes into online forms. Approaches such as these can be used to collect large amounts of organized data by streamlining data entry for users. And Leo finished off today's discussion by reminding us that customers don't initially come for data advantages because it takes time to build value from data. So entrepreneurs need to first think about building a value proposition separate from the data in order to acquire customers. It is only after a critical mass of users and activity that the business can evolve and the experience can be enhanced through the value of data. Okay, with that, let's transition to our tip of the week. And this week's tip is called Death by Dendogram. On today's episode, the concept of dendograms and clustering came up. If you're not familiar with dendograms, they are sort of like a vertical decision tree. But instead of decisions, each branch represents submarkets within the greater market. The nice thing about these visual tools is it helps marketing and the executive team make data-driven decisions about what to innovate, how to position, and customer messaging. This is related to discussions about TAM versus SAM. What is the total available market that with geographic channel and product expansion can be accessed? Where with SAM, what is the specific target market that can be served right now? So at the very top of this dendogram tree is the entire customer market. And conceivably, at the very bottom, one could include every individual customer on a separate branch. And with a dendogram, the length of each of the branches indicates the relative difference between customer segments. The longer a branch for a node from its parent, the more disparate the traits of the subsegment. So, for example, let's take a look at the outdoor grilling market. At the top of the tree is the entire market. If we think about the types of customers that buy grills, let's pick three straightforward customer groups. Number one, I'll call the weekend warrior. This customer uses the grill once a week or less during the summer. The second group I'll call the outdoor chef. This customer may not use the grill frequently, but considers their self a grilling expert and requires more control and better grilling equipment. Number three, I'll call the all-day, everyday griller. This customer may use the grill every chance he or she gets, amounting to three-plus times per week. So those are the three broad categories, but maybe there are subcategories within each. So that first category, the weekend warrior, may be split into 1A, the holiday dad, who likes to grill on holidays for neighborhood block parties, and 1B, the tailgater, who takes a portable grill to the football games on Sundays. And maybe the second group, that outdoor chef group, is broken into 2A, the culinary king, who has the top-of-the-line convection-style grill for the most accurate cooking, and 2B, the party yard, who has the most expensive grill, landscaping, fire pit, and pool, but rarely actually uses the equipment to cook food. These are just hypotheticals. I don't actually know anything about the grilling market, but as you can see, limitless levels of subgroups can be broken out that further define the differences between customer sets. And each of these segments have different sets of needs and wants that must be considered. This can be very valuable as the marketing team sizes each of these subcomponents. How realistic is it to build one product that serves all of these segments? Not very. 
most startups will need to create a new disruptive product with tremendous value for one niche or subsegment of the overall market. And this niche needs to be large enough to justify the effort. The really great startups that I come across not only have a tightly defined strategy around a specific segment of the market, but also a vision by which their offering can expand to eventually address the majority of the market. The biggest mistake that I call death by dendogram is when all segments are pursued right from the beginning. Those trying to be everything to everyone often end up being nothing to anyone. The other common issue I see is those startups that don't have a vision or path to the big market. While executing and serving one segment very well is great, if there's no larger market opportunity, then the likelihood of a large venture return is much lower. I would not advocate asking an entrepreneur for their dendogram at the risk of getting some strange looks, but rather, I think it makes sense to ask founders about their customer segments. And if it's an early stage B2C company, maybe the amount of data is too limited to clearly define the segments. But that doesn't mean an entrepreneur can't have a hypothesis. Here are some questions that I typically ask. What are the target customer segments within the greater market? What are the need and want profiles for each? What is the degree of homogeneity between these target groups? Do they have wildly different psychographic and demographic profiles or not? Will an initial offering with a focused key benefit be able to serve each primary target group? In other words, can positioning and messaging be adapted such that you can appeal to the needs of each group without fundamentally changing the product or feature set? Are you able to use demographics to accurately predict which segment a potential customer will be in? And finally, does your channel or marketing approach allow you to adapt the value cell for each target segment? Part of what makes B2C so hard is that target markets often have much more disparate dendograms and profiles, and it can be very hard to define these segments. Whereas in enterprise B2B, a shorter number of customers can be interviewed, surveyed, and defined much more explicitly. But regardless of customer type, using data to understand customers and drive a go-to-market strategy is increasingly important and measurable in today's digital environment. Big thanks again to Leo for his wisdom on the value of data. All show notes and links can be found at fullratchet.net. Until next time, overprepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. See you again soon.